0: Today's scripture comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 15 to 26. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope for your future declares the Lord and your children shall come back to their own country I have heard Ephraim grieving you have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God for after I had turned away I relented and after I was instructed I struck my thigh I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth is a frame my dear son is he my darling child for as often as you speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill, and Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I will awoke, awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas. I uh, hope you had a wonderful time so far this week, and as we get ready for this uh, Christmas uh, week, I hope that the Lord will really bless and prepare you for what is to come. Let's put our uh, heads down together, and let's pray for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us as we celebrate this Christmas Sunday. We ask, oh Lord, that you would speak powerfully to your people, for Lord, we are weak, And we need your power, the love of the power of your love, O God. We pray that you would now speak to your people in spite of all the things that we have struggled and all the things that we have failed. We ask, O Lord, that you would speak to your people and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Her name is Alice. And to this day, she still haunts me. Not as much as she used to, but every now and then, the memory of her fills my mind, and it messes me up. And to answer your question, no, she is not a former flame. She is not an ex from the past. Alice was one of my former youth group students when I first started out in ministry back in 2000. And one Friday night, as I picked her up, as I always did, to go to church for Bible study, she started to rant, as all 13-year-olds tend to do talking about how everyone wishes that they were her because she's so good-looking, she dresses fine, she's so wealthy, you know, her family was wealthy. And she went on and on for about a good 20 minutes to the point where I felt like I need to humble this girl. But in reality, I was more motivated by my annoyance of her. And in the most strictest and sincerest tone I could muster, I said these words to her, Alice, you ain't all that. And no one cares about you as much as you think they do. Silence was her response, as well as the rest of the car ride to church. The following Sunday, she didn't show up to service. She didn't pick up my calls. She didn't respond to my AIM chats to her. Back then, we used AIM to communicate with our youth group students. She never responded. And to this day, I have no idea where she is. But more importantly, I don't know if God is there with her. And that ignorance has really robbed me of much sleep for decades. That ignorance has really torn me apart. And I imagine that across dinner tables this Christmas, there are many parents, grown children, spouses, siblings, struggling with that same ignorance as they stare at an empty chair that they can't help but to feel responsible for its emptiness. Christian, what do you do? When your sins cause not your spiritual downfall, but the spiritual downfall of someone you love? What do you do when your inconsistency, your iniquity causes someone else to be estranged from God? How do you live with yourself? How do you move forward when you are responsible for someone else hating God because you have caused them to stumble that way? We're finishing today our Advent sermon series entitled, The Stories of Christmas Past. And the whole point of this series is to look at the Old Testament references that are cited in Matthew's account of the Christmas story. And today, we end this series by landing on Jeremiah chapter 31. Because here the apostle, not the apostle, the prophet, wrong covenant, the prophet Jeremiah is going to broaden and deepen our understanding of the significance of Christmas by foretelling of a future prophecy that will provide comfort and consolation to those of us who are still being haunted by our own Alice's, whoever he or she may be. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today from our text in Jeremiah 31. First, let's talk about the reason for Rachel's weeping. The reason for Rachel's weeping. Number two, let's talk about the response to Rachel's weeping. And finally, let's end it with the end of Rachel's weeping. The reason, the response, and finally the end of Rachel's weeping. Let's start with the first, the reason for Rachel's weeping. Read again with me verse one of our passage, where it starts off this way. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, before I begin... I want you to know something that may or may not be obvious to some or all of you. And that is the Bible is not a simplistic book, in spite of what the critics may say. No, the Bible is a very, very sophisticated book, meaning it speaks on matters that usually are beyond the grasp of the simple everyday thinking of people. Evidenced by the fact that it uses a panorama of a wide variety of figures of speech, symbolism, similes, metaphors, you know, hyperbole, it's all in there. Here in our passage we come to a figure of speech known as personification. Personification, where you have an abstract idea or a big concept that is conceptualized or represented through a particular concrete person. Think of Trump as personifying the disenfranchised of middle America. Think of Santa Claus as personifying the joy of Christmas spirit. This is what we see happening through the person God names in our passage, a woman by the name of Rachel. Now, who is Rachel? Well, if you know your Old Testament stories, you would recall that Rachel is the second wife of Jacob. Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the initial patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And you may wonder, why does God use Rachel as a personification, and what exactly is Rachel personifying? Well, read again the first half of verse 1 of our passage where it says, A voice is heard in Rama, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is being described as someone who is weeping uncontrollably. But what makes her cry so unusual is the location of where she is crying at. Where is she crying? Rama. Rama. Old Testament scholars tell us that Rama is where Rachel was buried when she died. That's the location of where she's crying. That is so weird. Why is that so weird? Let me ask you, have you ever witnessed a dead person crying before? And I'm not talking about a single streak of tear going down their cold, dead cheek. I'm talking about floods of tears streaming down accompanied with wailing and and crying and moaning. And you think to yourself, don't be ridiculous, pastor. Dead people don't cry. And yet, that's what God is describing. He's describing a dead person weeping. Now you're like, how do you make sense of that? Well, let me explain. God is trying to bring to our attention a certain kind of trauma that is so atrocious, that is so incredibly terrifying, that if there was something that could be so off-putting that it could actually cause a dead person to cry, it would be this trauma. It would feel like That even death could not silence the pain and the misery of this trauma. And so the question is, what is this trauma that God is using with this metaphor of Rachel crying? Again, the second half of verse 1. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel is crying because her children are no more. And remember, this is not the literal person of Rachel crying. But the personification of Rachel, of who she represents. And so again, we come back to the question at hand who or what is Rachel personifying? What does she represent? Listen to these words from Old Testament scholar Chris Wright as he writes this, quote, The weeping mother is Rachel, personified here as the mother of the whole nation of Israel. She is pictured as crying out for the loss of all her children, meaning those slain in the fall of Jerusalem and those exiles who were shoved out of the city by the Babylonian soldiers. Israel was in exile. Israel was in oblivion. Rachel is the personification of the entire nation of Israel that is weeping because... Her children have been condemned through exile. Okay, Now, all of this begs the question, why does God <clears throat> choose to use Rachel to personify the nation of Israel? Because after all, you could possibly make the persuasive argument that it would be more fitting to use Sarah, right? The first matriarch, the wife of Abraham to represent Israel, or maybe even Rebecca, the wife of Isaac the second matriarch of the whole nation of Israel. What's so special, what's so unique about Rachel herself to where God says, no, it's more fitting than Sarah or Rebecca that Rachel would be the one personifying the whole nation weeping. Well, if you go back to the story of Rachel found in the book of Genesis, you'll discover that she was the mother of Joseph. And who was Joseph? He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And he was also sold into a distant land called Egypt By his own brothers. Yes, that's right. This man, Joseph, was the victim of not of his enemies, but of those who were called to love him. They sent him away into slavery. And by sending their brother away to a far off land, separating him from his father, Jacob, you know what else they were doing? They were separating Joseph from God himself. Because at this point in redemptive history. Jacob was the only person. Who had the knowledge of God. You see the knowledge of God. Which was the means of having a relationship with God. Was confined at that point. Under Abraham's tent. Within his family. That included Jacob's family. And so when his brothers sent him off. Away to a far off place. Where God is not known. Where God is not confessed. They were dooming him. Joseph of never knowing God the god of his fathers. It's no different than when a pastor or a church leader does something so messed up, betraying and hurting the people of the church that those people not only become doomed away from the church but from the god who is found in the church as well. And that is why God chose Rachel to personify the nation of Israel, because through her natural association with Joseph, her personified tears represents the despair and guilt that results when our sins causes someone else to be separated for God, from God. This is the reason why, quote-unquote, Rachel is crying and cannot be consoled. You know why she won't be comforted? Because she knows she is responsible for her children being sent away to a far-off land, Babylonia, where there is no knowledge of God, therefore dooming her kids, her children, of never knowing this God as well. You know, I'm a father of five kids. And this is perhaps my greatest fear that far exceeds my fear of death if there was anything that could awaken my cold dead heart with unsurmountable grief it would be the knowledge of knowing that just one just one of my kids are separated from God because of me because of what I've done because of what I failed to be or to do either in their life or in your lives or in the life of my witness here on earth and those of you who are Christians parents Parent Christians, I imagine that you resonate with that fear as well. To know that you could be potentially responsible for why your son, your daughter hates God. Because you have sinned. You have failed. Now I know you singles and you're thinking, I'm so glad I'm not a parent. Not so fast. Because the way that the Christian life is set up, i.e. being part of this thing called the church, called the community... You are set up in such a way to where if you sin, if you do something wrong, you could definitely cause potential damage in the people who are part of this ministry, i.e. the ones who just left this room, who we love so much. Let me ask you, don't you know friends of yours who used to be part of the church who would say, I don't go to that church, not because of someone who they love, but because of someone they would see the hypocrisy? Why do you think Jesus says these very sobering words in Mark 9, verse 42, where he says, But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. This is not just a warning for the parents in here. It's a warning for all of you who claim to be genuine followers of Jesus. Pretty scary, right? And it should be. But the question is, how do you face this fear without being paralyzed by it so that you can truly live out your calling of being salt and light, of being a blessing to the world? The answer next leads me to my next point, the response to Rachel's weeping. Read again verse 16 and 17 of our passage where it says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Here, God is making what I call a comforting command to his people, people who are crying the tears of Rachel. And what is the command? He says it, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. In other words, God is saying, stop crying. And he's not saying that the way a frustrated parent would say that to a child melting down at the grocery store, stop crying. He's saying it in words of comfort, in words of soothing affection. And the reason why I know this is because of his follow-up in verse 17. What does he say? There is hope for your future. You know, when a parent is yelling, stop crying at a hysterical child, the way they're saying does not imply there's hope for that future, for, for that child's future, right? Just the opposite. There's more threat of more punishment. And so by virtue of the fact that God follows up this statement with these soothing words, tells us that we are to understand the command of verse 16 in the most comforting way possible. God is clearly conveying a soothing command in verse 16 to stir hope in your heart, Christian, that you do not need to be despairing if you find yourself struggling with the tears of Rachel in your life. In other words, if there is someone in your life or who used to be in your life that has been separated by God because of you, you do not need to be in despair. You don't have to be hopeless because there is hope. But the question is, what is that hope? Follow along as I read the second halves of both 16 and 17. The second halves of both verses. I'm going to bring it together. Listen. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. Your children shall come back to their own country. In the original context, God is making a promise that the children of Israel will come back from the exile, will come back from the Babylonian Empire, and they will return home. And this homecoming is not simply referring to the Jews coming back to their actual geographical land of Israel, but what the land itself symbolizes. And so here's the question. What does the land of Israel symbolize? Read again Chris Wright in his commentary. He writes, quote, The land function as proof of the relationship between God and Israel. In the context of family relationships, this term land speaks of the inheritance passed on by a father to his sons or sons. Thus, to speak of the land as Israel's inheritance metaphorically implies a relationship of sonship between Israel and God. What is he saying? He's saying the land is symbolic of a restored, loving, life-giving relationship with God. And when you apply that idea to what we just read in 16 and 17, what is God saying? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying the people whom we have caused to want nothing to do with God because of our failures, because of our mistakes, God is making this statement, I will bring them back. I will bring them back. Though it is true, you are the reason why they want nothing to do with me, I don't have to live with that. I don't have to accept that. That is what God is telling us. God is not bound by your failures. He doesn't depend on you to ensure that the people around you have a relationship with him. No doubt he will use you to be a means of bringing the people around you into a relationship with him. But he does not depend on you to ensure that relationship happens. You know why? Because he's God. And God, by definition, is not the third wheel of any of your relationships. And what I mean by that is, God is directly connected to everyone, to w- no matter where they go, to no matter who they're with, to no matter what happens to them, God is directly available to them. So he cannot be cut off from anyone because of you. Case in point, let's go back to the character of Joseph, the son of Rachel. If you read what happens to him after he gets sold in slavery in Genesis chapter 37, you come to discover this man suffered some horrific things as a result of his brothers doing what they did to him. He suffered as a slave. He was sexually assaulted. He was falsely accused of rape from that sexual assault. He was therefore falsely imprisoned. He almost made it out of prison but did not, therefore prolonging his false imprisonment. If there was any man who should be bitter and want nothing to do with the God of his brothers, it would be this guy. And yet consider his words, what happens when he's reunited with the men who are responsible for all this, his very brothers, starting in verse 3 of Genesis 45, we read, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve." your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all Egypt. I want you to notice two things in what we just read. Number one, second half of verse five. What does Joseph say to his brothers? It was God who sent me. It was God who sent me. <clears throat> that tiny statement says something so tremendous about God. And you know what it is? It's this. You cannot push someone away from God to where he cannot get to them. Let me say that again. You cannot push someone away from God to where God cannot get to them. And because that is so Joseph says what he does in the first half of verse 5. Don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this palace. You see that word angry? In the original Hebrew, it's the same word for wrath, as in God's wrath. God's punishing, judging, condemning anger. Joseph says, don't be angry with yourself. Don't condemn yourself. Don't punish yourself. Now, by saying this, Joseph is not excusing his brothers. He's not minimizing their sin. But what he's saying through that statement is, they don't need to condemn themselves. They don't need to punish, because, punish themselves because the thing that should have happened, i.e. Joseph wanting nothing to do with the God of Israel, nothing with the God of his brothers, nothing to do with the sovereign Lord who puts all things in place. says, I want nothing. No, that didn't happen. And because it didn't happen, his brothers don't need to be punished, which he reiterates later on in chapter 50 of Genesis when he says these words to his brothers again after their father died. He says, but Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but listen, God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. It's beautiful, isn't it? Well, only if you understand the point. What is the point? The point is, Christian, you don't need to despair. You don't need to beat yourself up. You don't have to be crying the tears of Rachel For your failure, for your responsibility of causing someone else to no longer be connected to God. Because the promise that God makes is that He can restore what you have destroyed, He can bring back what you have cast away through your sins. In fact, to assure us of this promise, He says these words in verse 20 in response to Rachel's tears. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Who in the world is Ephraim? You know who he is? He's the son of Joseph, born in the halls of Pharaoh's palace. Ephraim never grew up like his father Joseph did under the tent of Jacob where he learned about the Torah, where he learned about Israel. Okay? And yet, God says, I even have Ephraim. This is an argument of what? From the greater to the lesser. If I can get Ephraim, don't you think I can get Joseph back? If God can reach those who are even further removed from those who are pushed away by your sins, don't you think he can get those people back as well? This is the promise God gives in response to your tears. Tears that you should shed. That you should cry. But now you don't have to cry anymore. And I know you hear this and you're like, Pastor, that's easy for you to say, you don't know the person that I'm thinking of. You don't know how bitter they are, how painful they've become, how bent out of shape they are now, and how they want nothing to do with me, and more importantly, they don't want anything to do with the God that I love and worship, that I failed, that I've caused. You know, such disappointment and heartache because of what I've done to this person. How can I have faith? How can I have real belief that this is true? Well, let me show you by going to the final point the end of Rachel's weeping. Read again, one more time, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your ears from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. I want to draw your attention to something that I did not before when we first looked at this verse, and that is God telling us the reason why he makes this promise. It's embedded right there in that middle verse. For there is reward for your work. God makes this promise that he will recapture those who want nothing to do with him because of your sins, because of a reward. Now, you hear that, and that sounds so weird, right? Because a reward, by definition, is something that someone receives for a great achievement, a great work. So what work is God referring to here as saying that because of this work, I am going to give the reward this promise that I will undo what you have done through your sins to somebody else. Well, if you go back to the story of Rachel again, You can figure out the answer. If you go back to chapter 35, there you find Rachel laboring, literally giving birth to her second son, a boy by the name of Benjamin. But of course, if you know the story, you know the result of her giving birth to Benjamin results in her death. Here we see a principle, life given at the expense of death. Life for death. And we see that same idea that God uses to apply to our passage. But then again, we have to come back. Whose death are we referring to because again, This is not literally speaking of Rachel. It's personification. It's representation. Whose death is the result of life? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 8. We read, Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over the many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Come on back. If there is anyone who is responsible for causing other people to be estranged from God, it's Adam. If there is one sin that is responsible for, to why every human being on this earth wants nothing to do with God is because of Adam's sin. You know Adam, of Adam and Eve, the very first human beings that ever existed in in all of God's history. All right? The born perfect, righteous, loving God planted in the garden of Eden. And then Satan in the form of a certain comes up, tempts them to say, disobey God. Eat from that tree that he explicitly forbids you to eat. And so Adam succumbs. He takes the bite of that fruit, committing the sin that is known as original sin, and what happens as a result? All of his progeny, all of his descendants, every human being that walks on this earth, everyone in here is born with what? A sin nature, right? Total depravity, where our natural instinct, our natural proclivity is to want nothing to do with this God, all because Adam, our great father, did us wrong by sinning against our great God. And by sinning against God, causing this downfall, he'd cause something else. What does it say? Verse 12. Death spread to all of mankind. Death was not something God embedded in design of our creation. Death is never part of God's plan, and it was a result of Adam's sin, which means all the things that are connected to death, fear, illness, selfishness, addictions, violence, every other misery in this life, all comes from the sin of Adam. Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, right, I'm sure up till now you're thinking, this message doesn't apply to me, Pastor. You know, Because though it is true that I have people in my life who I messed up, who I really met, wounded, because I failed them, because I did them wrong, I never thought that their recovery would involve a relationship with God. But if what the Bible says is true, that death is a result of Adam's sin that caused all the misery of life, do you know what that means? It means that that person, for them to truly have hope again, to recover from the damage that you cause, they need a relationship with God. Because He is the source. He is the center of it all. This is what makes Christianity such good news. Okay? This is what makes Christianity such good news because as we read in Romans 5, God has done something to make a relationship with God possible. God came into the world as Jesus Christ so that through His death on the cross, He could fully satisfy, fully ransom, fully pay, All the consequences of your sins and my sins. And guess what? The sin of Adam. To where God can take back whom Adam's sin pushed away. All of us. That's what the gospel teaches us. Listen again to what it says in verse 15 and 16 in Romans 5. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' death will result in more people reconnecting to God than those who have been disconnected from God through Adam's sin. There will be way more people in heaven than there will ever be in hell. That's what it says. Because this is true, do you realize what this means? It means those of you in here who have an Alice in your life, those of you in here who struggle with Rachel's tears, you can let it go. You can truly let it go. Listen, if God can undo the sin of Adam, He can undo your sins. If God can bring back those who have been cast away, exiled from God because of Adam's sin, He can reclaim and He can reconnect those who have been cast away from Him because of your sins. That's the promise of the gospel to where you come to understand that when you hear the Christmas story that yes, Jesus came for you. Yes, He came to be restored to you. Maybe he also came for those who you felt you have cast away from God. And that should be what you look forward to, and that's what you should be praying for. That's what you should be hoping in this holiday season. Out of the many reflections that you will have this Advent, I hope and pray that, more than anything, will be on your heart. And that no longer will you cry the tears of Rachel. And as we just read in the final verse of our passage, you will awake and you will look and you'll find that your sleep was pleasant to you. I want to end my message with a couple of next steps. First, if you're here today investigating Christianity, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And we ask that you would take this time, if you're ready, if today's message stirred you or if it was pivotal, the tipping point for you to move forward. Take this time now and accept Christ as Lord and Savior. We would love to pray with you and pray for you and guide you in your next journey of faith as you move forward in your relationship with Christ. Number two, take some time this Christmas season. Pray for your Alice, whoever she is, whoever he is, whatever his name, whatever her name, pray for them. Pray for God to be with that person. Maybe if possible, reopen the door, provide an opportunity to where they can be a person of peace. Your person of peace maybe someone else's person of peace. But would you take some time to pray for that person? Finally, number three, memorize and reflect Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 17. How Christ undid the sin of Adam, therefore he can undo the sin that you have caused. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Father, for you are a God of grace and mercy, not only for our own sins but even the consequences of those sins father i imagine that just like myself many in this room are periodically visited in an unwelcome way those who don't want anything to do with you because of what we have done against them or what we have just done in general that is disappointed disillusioned that has caused you to be discredited in their eyes because of our failure. Lord, forgive us. Thank you that you already have. But Lord, we pray now that as we move forward, that we would wipe away the tears of Rachel in our hearts and that we would move forward in faith and hope, knowing that you are a God who is near even to those who seem so far from us and who from our vantage point seem so far from you. Lord, help us to have faith in your goodness and your grace in your power. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.